0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
1: Hi, I'm Oz Davis of the True the Goats podcast here at the Sports History Network. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time, newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast or any of them at the Sports History Network, you're probably into sports history. And you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to, say, 1990 online, the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless. But then there's newspapers.com. Newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from North America, Britain, Ireland, and more, getting to 1798 to last week. Do up a search for Super Bowl One, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like. Just don't give you. And now get a free one week subscription to newspapers.com by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of Myth Podcasts and other Sports History Network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than you know what I'm talking about.
2: Hello, Old Sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. You have once again made the wise decision to travel back in time to the his- in the history of sports with your co-hosts, Dan and Andrew Newman, on the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. Baseball season is in full swing, and so we thought it would be a good idea to examine some baseball topics over the next couple of weeks. And what we have here today is the first episode of a two-episode series on the Baltimore Orioles of the 90s. We will talk this week about the Baltimore Orioles of the 1990s, the teams of Cal Ripken and Brady Anderson and Mike Mussina and Roberto Alomar and Davey Johnson and all the rest. And then next week, we will travel back in time, further back than we've ever traveled before to the 1890s and perhaps the first great dynasty in baseball history, the 1890s Baltimore Orioles with... Legends like Huey Jennings and John McGraw, Wee Willie Keeler and Big Dan Bruthers and all the other fighting brawlers of the 1890s Orioles. But that's for next week. This week, we're a little more modern, a little more into things that we can remember. And so we're going to talk about 1990s Baltimore Orioles. Andrew, how are you doing tonight?
3: I'm good, Dan. Um, the common thread on both of those teams is that Jesse Orozco made a parent. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this topic. It's, it's an interesting kind of um, thread we've had the last couple or, mo- you know, a few of the last episodes in that teams I'm a fan of have been kind of the antagonist in this story. You know, we're going to talk about the 90s Orioles and, and obviously the Yankees, especially in 96, are kind of the opposition in that story, uh, the antagonist in a literary sense. Uh, well, we talked about the Nets a few months ago or a few episodes ago not that the 2000s Knicks were good, but just sort of the Knicks in general as the antagonist from the Nets being their biggest, you know, rival. And we also did an two episodes actually on LaSalle basketball and LaSalle basketball is their own worst enemy. So (laughs) it's several uh, teams that, you know, and oftentimes in oppositions to team, teams I was rooting for, but I'm also, I'm excited tonight because as I just mentioned, LaSalle, our special guest tonight is my college roommate at LaSalle and lifelong Baltimore Orioles fan, my roommate from college, LaSalle class of 2008, Mike Petty. Mike, how's it going tonight?
4: Very good. Thanks for having me, guys.
3: Thanks for uh, coming on. We, we knew when we started trying to, to get some guests for the podcast and, and think of different episodes, we could have friends of ours on or authors. Um, not that those are there hasn't been any overlap in that so far, but um, the, uh, you know, this was when I was like, oh I bet I can get my friend Mike on to, to come talk about the the nineties Orioles and sort of his Orioles fandom. So we'll jump into sort of the history of briefly. We'll do the history of the Orioles up until the timeframe we're going to focus on in a second, but just by way of generalities or, you know, by way of background, you grew up in central New Jersey, sort of the Trenton area, Would you explain a little about how you grew up as an Orioles fan?
4: Yeah, so absolutely grew up in central New Jersey. I pretty much, my earliest sports memories are going to Camden Yards. I have ticket stubs of uh, games that my dad said I went to at Memorial Stadium. I don't remember it, and it's kind of a bummer to not remember those games and some of those probably terrible teams based on how they were at that time, but yeah, no, I mean, some of my earliest memories were going with my dad and my mom to Camden Yards and, you know, especially growing up right there with, you know, Cal Ripken's heyday and, you know, that, that was pretty much, yeah, the you know, like I said that we had a, growing up, we had a Sunday plan, which was, uh, I think the Orioles, I don't know if they only played 13 home games on Sundays, but I knew every year we would get 13 games and then, yeah, no, it, it was, you know, every Sunday it was kind of the plan As if the Orioles were home, we were going to take a trip down to Baltimore. And so, like I said, some of my favorite childhood memories are, you know, Camden Yards, Baltimore and my family.
3: Yeah. I was actually going to, I'm sure I've asked you before about going to Memorial. It's it's cool that you have the, the stubs, but it's not, I mean, their last when we'll talk a lot about that 92 season but i guess their last year in baltimore or in memorial would have been 91 so you would have been five so yeah not not unreasonable that you wouldn't remember that so let's just briefly sort of sort of zoom through the history history of the orioles in baltimore until the late 80s is where we'll, we'll start to hone in a little and there's a there's a nice symmetry here you know we talked about that 1890s team uh they were an nl team when the national league was the only major league there was Basically, there were about 12 teams in the National League, and they got sort of contracted out of existence in, the, in 1900. There was a very short-lived American League version of the team that then moved to New York and became the Yankees. And then for about 50 years, there was various iterations of a minor league franchise known as the Baltimore Orioles. So really, the Orioles' name has been the Baltimore Major League team for a very, very long time. And then in... 1954, they moved from modern-day Orioles traced back to the St. Louis Browns, which is interesting because you live in St. Louis and you have for for quite a while now since college, so I've always just thought there's a little bit of, uh, of symmetry there, that you're an Orioles fan in St. Louis, and not that I doubt there's too many people fondly remembering a team from 70 years ago who was mostly terrible the whole time they were there, but it is interesting.
4: It's, it is weird. It'll occasionally wearing something Orioles out here. And I think there'll be someone whose grandfather was a Browns fan and you'll get that kind of crossover. And even at Bush Stadium, they'll sell, you know, they still sell Brown stuff, which you and I talked many times about my dream of a Cardinals-Orioles matchup where they'll actually wear Browns uniforms and have that, you know, to go back to those World Series they played against each other.
2: And I yeah. think the other thing that's worth noting about the Browns is that Unlike So this is the 50s, and I think the Browns moving to Baltimore, was that like the – I think they were the second team to move in the 50s. First was the Braves went from Boston to Milwaukee, and then you had the Browns became the Orioles, and I think after that was the when Philly with Athletics moved to Kansas City, right?
3: Yeah, they, the Browns were 54, and the, um, the A's were 55. And again, this is a subject for a different episode, but the Browns – The Browns own Sportsman's Park, which is where the Browns and the Cardinals both played. And probably up until like the mid-20s, the Browns were on equal footing and in some cases probably better footing than the Cardinals. And the Cardinals got really good in the 20s and 30s and stayed good. And the Browns largely remained terrible, but they still own the stadium. And when Bill Veck took over... He was like, you know, they're a better team, but we own the stadium. We're on better financial footing. We can probably force them out of St. Louis. And then the Cardinals got sold to the Bush family and Bill Vec right away was like, I'm not forcing Gus. I think the quote is, he's like, I knew I wasn't forcing Gussie Bush out of St. Louis. (laughs) So he tries to move them and his is, and say what you will about Bill Vec, but he was a forward thinking guy. And his plan was, I'm going to move to Los Angeles. And he was all set to move to Los Angeles and at a meeting of the American league where they had to approve the move, the most powerful team in the American league at the time, the New York Yankees wanted Bill Veck out. So they got enough support to block that move and basically told Bill Veck, we're going to keep you in St. Louis until you're forced to sell the team. And then we'll let whoever buys the team move somewhere. So, that, so that's what happened. They moved to Baltimore in 54.
2: The other point I would make is just that of all the teams, that moved the Browns, first of all, the only team that actually changed their identity, the St. Louis Browns became the Baltimore Orioles. Everybody else kept their name and their color scheme and all that type of thing. Senators. Yeah, but the Senators didn't move to the early till until the early sixties. I'm okay. talking about that first sort of <laughs> tranche there. But and they were also the team that probably had the least history. You know, the A's had the really good years with Connie Mack in the teens, and then later in the twenties and early thirties. The Boston Braves had won a title. You know, obviously a couple of years later you get the Dodgers and Giants who had both been really good at certain times but I think that the Browns had one year in like 1922 when George Sisler hit 400 and they lost the pennant to the Yankees by a couple of games but they had only ever been to one World Series and that was in 1944 which was the most war depleted year of the the World War II years they were the only team ever to send a midget up to bat that was obviously years later with uh Bill Vecch and Eddie Goodell as a publicity move. They were also the only team during the war who had a one-armed player. So they were a team that was just sort of invisible.
3: He was doing that, you know, and he also the Browns had a bunch of older players then because by 44, they were taking everybody for the war effort. So mm-hmm. if you had guys who were not draft eligible for one reason or another, because they were missing an arm or because they were three feet tall, or I guess that was later, but you know, or if they were 38 years old or or whatever, So the Browns and that was that World Series does hold the distinction of that's the last time until 2020 that the World Series was played all in one park. The Yankees and Giants did it in 21 and 22, and then the Browns and Cardinals did it in 1944.
2: That was the only Browns World Series, and it was the only time that two teams from St. Louis played each other in the World Series. You've had, you know, you've had, quote unquote, Subway Series in Chicago. You've had them in Boston. You've obviously had a bunch of them in New York. That was the only one ever in St. Louis.
3: Yeah, so not to, you know, because we got some time to cover here. So the Browns move in 54, since World War II ended, they had been awful in St. Louis. They'd been in either 7th or 8th place. And it's not like things were immediately better in Baltimore. You know, they were, not that there were expansion teams then, but they were, for all intents and purposes, starting over. The Colts had been in Baltimore for a couple of years at this point. Right, the Colts started in the early 50s, right, Dan?
2: Yeah, there was an expansion Colts for like one year in like 1951. And then that team went away pretty quickly. And then I think a couple of years later was when the Colts came to Baltimore, the team, you know, the classic blue and white Colts that were really good, really fast with Unitas and Weebubank Bank and Raymond Berry and all those guys, you know, ended up winning a couple of championships in the late 50s. So, yeah, that was sort of when sports, you know, I, th- I think I'll look up real quick, but I think the Colts franchise beginning was within a year or two on either side of the Orioles coming from St. Louis so it all sorts of ha- sort of happens at once in Baltimore.
3: Yeah. So, you know, they they they're not great for a lot of the late 50s and early 60s and then by the early 60s, you know, 64, 65 there's a couple of second place finishes and then 66 is really when the golden era of Orioles baseball. That that continued till the 80s in various iterations. Began sort of also probably not totally coincidentally, but as the Yankees 40-year run was ending, the Orioles, for the next 20 years, were probably the premier team in the American League. So, you know, Mike, obviously I know being my age, you weren't around for that, but between your dad and just history of the team, any sort of thoughts you have on those 60s teams predominantly we'll get to the 80s in a little while but you know just growing up and hearing people talk about them and seeing highlights of brooks robinson and jim palmer and all of that just anything you have to say about those teams earl weaver obviously you know now would be a good time for that
4: yeah i mean uh, i definitely burned up some vhs tapes of those old uh you know highlights of the world series you know like this week in baseball style videos that we used to watch yeah, no, I just, obviously the 66 team is the one where Frank, the Orioles trade for Frank Robinson and kind of really put, takes the Orioles, you know, to that next step. The big thing I feel like of that is, you know, obviously Earl Weaver, everyone talked about the, you know, the three-run homer, you know, that was his big thing through all that is, you know, Earl was using analytics or whatever form of analytics was at that time it was about defense and pitching and there's a lot of Orioles fans seem to think that era you know losing to the Mets in 69 you know and then obviously they win in 70 but then they lose again in 71 with that team with four 20 game winners It just what could have been you're starting to talk about a potential dynasty that just was that close you know with that many superstars you know Jim Palmer Brooks Robinson those kind of guys who are just Orioles legends
2: And a lot of guys who were lifelong Orioles, particularly Brooks, Palmer, Earl Weaver never managed anywhere else. These are guys that are completely and entirely associated just with the Orioles franchise. One of the the coolest moments that I've had as a sports fan is that um, I think it was like 2012, my now wife and I, she's a Red Sox fan. So I took her up to Baltimore for her birthday for the last weekend of the season to watch them play the Red Sox. And I don't know if somebody was getting it wouldn't have been a number retirement, but they had this ceremony where they had all six sort of living Orioles legends. so it was Weaver. It was both Robinsons, Eddie Murray, Ripken and Jim Palmer, you know, all, all six legends. And we had good seats we were only like 10 rows back from the field, and just watching each of these guys go by in their own individual car. And I think Earl Weaver died either that you know, six months later, I'm sorry.
3: Died there. Uh,
2: <laughs> I think he died either six months would, later. We're going to pause on the proceedings. <laughs> well, he would have had everybody there for his funeral, but um. so, and so it was just so cool. And I just remember looking and thinking like every single one of these guys, if you asked anybody to make a list of probably the six most beloved guys in the history of this franchise, they're all alive. They're all still here. They're all active in one way or another. With the organization. And I just thought that was really cool. And I think that's probably because they got so good not too long after moving to Baltimore and becoming the Orioles. So they had this really, you know, this really good history, a lot of which we're going to talk about, squeezed into this couple of decade period.
3: And I think it also, if you consider the context of, and it was actually interesting to hear you, well, that's a long story, but a podcast you had help prepare the notes on that I listened to a few years ago, Dan. It's also when you consider they moved to Baltimore, their closest team just down the road is the Washington senators who just like the Browns have been largely awful for a long time. They won a couple of championships in the twenties and thirties, but the Orioles were moving into an area that even though there was an established team in the same sort of metropolitan area, Moving in and getting good was probably going to peel whatever remaining Senators fans there were away. So, you know, they kind of moved into virgin territory and were able to, by getting good so quick, become the biggest. I, I mean, you'd have to say from the early 60s until the early 90s, at least, the two teams, the biggest teams in the Baltimore, Washington metropolitan area were the Redskins and the Orioles by a mile. And I guess, you know, some college, but those two teams by a
2: mile. I think absolutely, and I think it's also interesting that the one sport that Baltimore didn't have, I'm sorry, the one sport that D.C. didn't have from 1983 to 1986 was the one sport that Baltimore had. And so even, you know, I've heard stories about how Oreo games in a lot of ways were extensions of D.C., so some of the, you know, the big law firms and lobbying firms, you know, all the, you know, the money and everything that gets thrown around D.C., the, the ones that now have box seats at the Nationals games had them at Oreo games. And, you know, when Bill Clinton threw out the first pitch when he was president, he went to Baltimore. And so Baltimore, even to this day, sometimes, you know, like in the Post and, you know, in the papers, th- there's some Orioles coverage that you can tell is sort of a legacy of the way things were before. And so, Part of the objection when they brought in the Nationals all those years later, it wasn't just about TV. It was also just about the fact that all of these heavy hitters that were driving the 50-some-odd miles to Baltimore to go to a game were now going to stay much more local in D.C.
3: So let's just zoom ahead a little. They, they win championships in 66 and 70. 69's the big—they get to the World Series three years in a row. 69, they lose to the Mets. 70, they win— 71, they lose to the Pirates. Throughout the 70s, they're a, a, an upper echelon team. The AL East gets better. The Yankees are good. The Red Sox have their time. So the 70s are a little bit of a down, not down, but compared to the late 60s. Letting 79 is the uh, We Are Family Pirates World Series. So they end the, the 70s the same way they begin the 70s, which is in a World Series with the Pirates that they come out on the short end of.
4: Hey, Andrew, can yeah. we just... Can we just fat, like think about for a second, can you imagine how wild it would be to see a team with four 20 game winners? That's like 71 team. Just the idea that we don't have guys, I don't know that the Orioles team this year will have four guys pitched like start 20 games, let alone <laughs> win 20 games.
3: Yeah, let me I'll pull up the numbers here. So 71 Did anyone else even start a game for them that year? Yeah, it looks like they had three guys start a few other games for them, but for the most part it was these four and I'll I'll give you the numbers. Mike Cuellar, 20 and 9, 3.08 ERA. Pat Dobson, 20 and 8, 2.90 ERA. Jim Palmer, 20 and 9, 2.68 ERA. All three of those guys started either 37 or 38 games, by the way. And then Dave Dave McNally, 21 and 5, 2.89 ERA. So that's just the four of them combined is what 81 wins just without anybody else winning a game
2: it's and honestly mcnally might be the one who's the most impressive the guy won 21 games in 30 stars is an 808 winning percentage that's crazy that's something you see from like the 19 teens
3: yep yeah and that's and and still i mean this is and if you look at the complete games i mean i know it was a long time ago but it wasn't 1905 there was relief pitching by then and our 21 complete games. Dobson, 18. Palmer, 20. And McNally, 11. So, you know, th- these were wins that these guys earned. They weren't cheap wins is what I'm trying to say. They weren't going five innings and letting the bullpen finish it for them. 79, they lose. But, you know, things are still similar. They're, you know, they're a, a perennial powerhouse team. And then we'll talk about 83 here. But 1982 is the beginning of an era that would last for the better part or pretty much entirely two decades and that was when cal ripkin jr made his debut as a baltimore oriole and he won was he rookie of the year in 82 he was and mike still i'm assuming to this day still far and away your favorite oriole correct
4: yeah far and away and i think i told you this story the it's it's a family squabble early in my childhood because uh, my mom had a crush on Mark Belanger and was not very happy about a young guy named Cal Ripken coming in and uh, inserting himself into the lineup.
3: <laughs> so he immediately comes in and becomes, you know, really the face of the, the franchise and like I said, would remain so for two decades. Rookie of the year in 82, MVP in 83, his first of two. 83, they are... 98 and 64 team. They win the World Series against the Phillies. I've talked about this a little before. Um, I actually gave it to Mike. You know, because we talked. Our family's from Philadelphia and, and moved to New York in 1969. But my grandfather grew up in Philadelphia and was there for a good portion of his adulthood and a couple of his. My father never really passed on the Philly. I shouldn't say really at all. I mean, I spend half of my day screaming about how much I hate the Eagles. I can't say, oh, he didn't really pass it along. But the Philly sports thing kind of faded for my dad. But a couple of my uncles kind of maintained it a little longer. And I guess during the 83 World Series, when my uh, uncle was a college student in upstate New York, him and some friends went to one of the World Series games at Veterans Stadium. And a few years ago, when we were moving my, my grandfather out, you know, he unfortunately has since passed away. I was kind of cleaning some things up and there was a program from the 1983 World Series at Veterans Stadium that I guess my uncle had given to my grandfather. So interestingly enough, I was there in Pennsylvania on my way to Pittsburgh to meet Mike, to go to the Atlantic 10 basketball tournament. So I definitely, I was like, Oh, I got to grab this. So I was able to give that to him. And even though it was the Phillies version of it, I don't think anyone else was giving him a 1983 World Series program that week and beggars can't be choosy so um it was funny though because they clearly wrote it uh, you know the most of it is Philly centric but then the middle clearly they made when the postseason was like when the postseason started so it not only had pages about the Orioles and the Phillies it also had pages about the white sox and the Dodgers <laughs> that was who they played in the championship series so I guess they were like we're just doing this now we don't have
2: enough time to and the White Sox, they were managed that year by a guy who's a name you probably haven't thought of in a long time, a guy named Tony Larusa, who was a manager a long time ago. Fans today don't know who that is, but...
4: St. Louis fans do, for sure. <laughs> That's but, true. No, but going back to what you're saying about 83, is now, again, put yourself in the shoes of Cal Ripken. So, '80, you know, you win the Rookie of the Year, MVP. He literally catches the line drive in the final game. Like, he makes the final out, has his hands up. And there's a lot of stories out there of, you know, when he wrote his, you know, career retrospectives of if you could have told him in the end of 1983, like, hey, your career's going pretty good. He would have taken his career, but to think he'd never even get close back to those highs of, you know, where he was and where the team was.
3: And it, it's kind of funny because, I mean, obviously he won it, but mm. right around the same time was Marino, who was in his second year in 84. That was the year he threw the 48 touchdown passes. Dan Marino, you know, obviously. And, he wins the world. You know, they get to a Super Bowl his second year. He's the MVP of the league. He throws forty eight touchdown passes. They lose to San Francisco, and everybody's like, He'll be fine. He'll have plenty of chances to win a Super Bowl by the by the time his career's over. And they got to a few more conference championships games, but that was it. You know, he never got it. So it shows that yeah, I'm sure Cal Ripken in nineteen eighty three, if you had said this is the only one you'll win, wouldn't have been happy. But think about if they had lost that series and then the rest of his career played out the same way. So right. You know, that was, uh, it's interesting because, and Dan, I'll ask you this. Can you think of any other like legendary guys who only won one, but it was at the very beginning of their career? Like, you know, there's plenty of stories about guys like Jerry West who finally got the one towards the end of his career. But can you really like, I'm sure there were some, and I hate to put you on the spot like this, but do, do any pop out to you right away like that?
2: My short answer is no. The only somewhat comparison that I can think of, and it's two guys, is how in 86, when the Mets won it with Daryl and Doc, everybody thought that was the beginning of not just a new dynasty for the team, but also these two guys were on their way to Cooperstown. They were going to win more championships, and obviously there were personal aspects to that with them. It wasn't just that they just kept trying. But other than that, yeah, you're right. You, you
3: and Those guys also did then this is probably not the thing to bring up on this podcast like but those guys did win another ring or two rip uh, in 96
2: that's a good point And strawberry won actually they both won strawberry won in 98 and 99 and then gooden was on the team in 2000 so
4: yeah so anyway i have a feeling Daryl strawberry is going to come up at some point in this that's like the high, that's the highlight of the back end of the 90s we can, we'll get to that that's I'm like one of the only time. good things that happens
3: so after 83 they kind of slide a little bit. They're like a middling team the next couple of years. And then 88 is the year they bottom out. And I have to say right off the bat, and I don't know why I have to say this, but I'm going to 1988 in Baltimore is a very interesting year for me and my brother, which is my brother and I, is one of our favorite TV shows of all time is called homicide life on the street. And it's about, Baltimore it's about a Baltimore homicide detectives the show takes place in the 90s it was on NBC from like 93 to 99 the show is based on a book by David Simon who later went on to to be the guy from the wire and famous Baltimore Sun journalist the book homicide a year on the killing streets is about a year he spent embedded with the Baltimore homicide unit and that year was 1988 So in the book, there's a few tangential references to the Orioles. And what what did they start? Like, Owen? 21. Owen 21. Yeah. So, you know, to think just five years earlier, they'd won the World Series. And by 1988, they're starting Owen 21. That's really, I mean.
4: Well, and the big part about that, too, is is that Cal Sr. is the manager and gets fired. And that was a real big... You know, moment for the Ripken family because Cal Sr. had been in the franchise forever. And there's a prospect coming up named Billy Ripken. Cal's on the team. And I know Cal has said many times that there were some really rough moments of seeing your dad in an Orioles uniform. And when he gets fired, it wasn't just that dad wasn't in the dugout, it's that the Orioles literally were Cal Ripken Sr.'s entire life. And there was a lot of family issues just going through with, you know, Cal senior dealing with not being an Oriole anymore.
2: And they fire him after six games, which one of the firings and Andrew, I guess we just keep bringing it back to the Yankees. But um, so be it. One of the things you hear about a lot is that how I think it was in 85 when the Steinbrenner fired Yogi Berra and brought Billy Martin back after like, I don't know, like 15 or 16 games. Six games, I think that sort of gets lost in the shuffle because they went on to still not win another game for two more weeks. But to fire a guy after an 0-6 start, especially when his two sons are the starting middle infield, that's really, he must have really ticked somebody off.
3: Unless you lost them like 30 to nothing and he got thrown out of every game. Like, that's gotta be, to let the guy go through all of spring training and like be the manager, and then after six games, like, this isn't cutting it. You wonder now in this day and age, would it, a guy of Cal Ripken's status have said, I want to trade. I don't know what okay. his contract status was in 1988, but would he have maybe with modern free agency, would he have maybe said, I'm leaving whenever my contract is up. It's hard to look at these things through a modern lens, but they probably benefited from the fact that he didn't have the options that a guy these days would, would have if they fired a coach. He was that fond of irrespective of it being his dad. And I and, and I think it also another point In this day and age, a manager or coach wouldn't get fired if the star player was that against it.
4: Well, that's where I was trying to think back. (laughs) Usually, when you see like a dad coaching the son in pro sports, it's I never feel like the players the players serviceable. You know, I think of you know Austin Rivers is who I was thinking of. You know, and it's like it's never actually the star player. Yeah, that would I don't know how that plays out.
3: The interesting thing here, and and you know, we're moving towards our target. (laughs) range but is that the next year so they finished 80, 88 54 and 107 which honestly when you start oh and 21 could be a lot worse it's not good but it, that means they went what 54 and 86 the rest of the way that that could have been you know not awful comparatively no um, but they the next year in 89 they finished second and they only finished two games behind that must've been Toronto, I guess. Toronto.
4: Yeah. They actually blow the lead late in that season. Obviously I was three years old when that season happened. But if you were to ask my dad until those mid nineties Orioles, if you ask him what one of his favorite seasons was, it's that 89 year to literally only Orioles fans. It's the why not season. At some point, somebody, I guess there was a guy in the stands with a, why not sign basically like, uh, why not us? I guess. And, The, you know, Dan, like you were saying about, you know, the Orioles and their history with their legends, Frank Robinson is the manager of that Orioles team, you know, it's, it's kind of coming full circle. And yeah, they blow that lead late in that season. But there's a lot of people like really, you know, that's, that's up there for him.
2: And they have the rookie of the year that year, which is their closer, Greg Olson, who, I, you know, not a, a name that's sort of been lost to
4: history, but <laughs> you know, Greg Olson's entrance theme was wild thing. He'd come in just like straight out of Rick Vaughn. Like it was the whole thing. So yeah, he was a, that's a fan favorite.
2: Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many, obviously Ripken was the rookie of the year, but it's rare to see a closer win rookie of the year. That might be the only time that's ever happened.
3: Hmm. So we'll zoom, you know, the 89 to close call. And then the year will really start that I think, even though it took a few years for the full performance on the field to catch up, the year that this all started to me, from my opinion, is 92. And we can talk about some of the players and some of the you know, performance on the field because they did go from, in 91, they were a 67 and 95 uh, sixth place team. And by 92, they were 89 and 73. So they improved 22 games in 1992 and finished in third. But the big thing in 1992 and the thing that really in large part, not exclusively, but in large part propelled what we're, you know, the, the eight or nine years we're about to talk about was the opening of Camden Yards. I looked up cause I was curious, even in the golden age you know 66 to 83 we talked about from an attendance standpoint when they were at memorial even when they were a mid dominance in the american league at least they were middle of the pack sometimes lower when they were bad they were towards the very bottom of the league and when camden yards opened in 92 89 to 91 they were fourth or fifth in attendance which i'm assuming is that by then they had People knew, hey, Memorial's not going to be around much longer. We should go. So there was an uptick. Before that, they'd been really low. But then, starting in 92, the first year of Camden Yards, and from 92 to 2000, which by the last couple of years of that, the performance on the field had dropped off, they were first or second in attendance every year. And through 2006 they were still in the upper three or four in attendance every year. And in fact, Mike, I think you and I were in college together when we went to some Oriole games our junior and senior year where the attendance had was pretty sparse. And I think sort of the thing was that by then, it had been seven or eight years since it had been, they'd been good, and they finally weren't able to live off the stadium's charm anymore. But that was 15 years. So talk about some of your early memories, just not even of the games, but just of going to Camden Yards?
4: Well, so growing up in Central Jersey, the games I went to most were Veteran Veterans Stadium. I mean, early on, you know, going to Phillies games and the concrete bowl that that was. And, you know, we would occasionally go to old Yankee Stadium, but it just felt like going to Camden Yards was a compl- was just a completely different experience. You know, it just felt, I mean, it's still to this day is probably the place I'm the happiest just going there. It's just like something about walking through those gates, seeing the warehouse. Yeah. It just, you know, like you said, out in the outfield, you got another guy from the sixties boot pal still out there with his barbecue. I think they've even said he's been out there a couple times this season, you know, with everything going on, but it was just something special. Like it really felt like it was just something you had never seen before, at least to me, that I think even recently the Baltimore Suns kind of run some renderings of what were earlier proposed for the new Orioles stadium. And they were so close to actually making what, you know, became the White Sox stadium and all these stadiums that we're already trying to replace. And, you know, Camden Yards right now, I just, I think you just got to keep updating it, but there's no reason to, you know, there's no reason it shouldn't be there, you know, a hundred years from now in my mind.
2: There's a really great book that's out. It's called ballpark. It's by a guy named Paul Goldberger, who was the, he may still be the New York Times architecture critic, and he has written a book. It came out a couple of years ago. My wife went and saw him speak. Uh, my wife and I, I should say, my wife and I went and saw him speak a couple of years ago when the book first came out. And it really sort of starts with stadiums right at the beginning of, you know, the very beginning of baseball, you know, the the wood stadiums in the 1800s and takes it all the way up through the present day. And it's just called Ballpark by Paul Goldberger Baseball in the American City and uh, in this book they say that the original design for Camden Yards quote looked like a spaceship so I think you're right it was originally intended to be very similar to what was already going on and Andrew and I have talked about how uh, whatever it's called now in Chicago is it US Cellular Field now is that what the current
4: I I think it changed even again I think it's
3: it's something because I remember that whatever it was they, it's like a company that does like re, li, finance. Oh, it's,
4: it's Guaranteed Rate Field or something. Like might that, it might even not be
3: that, but that's what it was because their logo is an arrow pointing down. Like we can get <laughs> you a low rate. So all over the ballpark, is just arrows pointing down. <laughs>
4: well, I will um, say there was one of the renderings that they showed that like the Baltimore Sun uncovered. And now just picture, I'd like your opinion on how this would have played out. So obviously in right field of Camden Yards, there's the big out of town scoreboard, which honestly, I feel like that was another thing that I never saw another team really have like a huge out of town scoreboard until they did it.
3: Old Yankee but- Stadium used to just have a black screen and they'd show three scores at a time. <laughs> if you wanted to see if the Red Sox were winning, you'd have to be like, I don't care that the Brewers are beating the Expo. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> like.
4: Well, so one of the rent, so that's what they did. They put a flag court out there and that's what they ended up doing. But one of the early ideas was to make the warehouse that, and I guess they were talking about potentially having a line somewhere on the warehouse that anything above it would have been a home run. But I guess one of the early proposals when they started, I I don't know if there was ever tests. That'd be a fun video to see out there is no one could play the wall. Like we could play the warehouse hitting the bricks and just, having random balls ricocheting.
3: And just like for reference or, you know, for context, Mike and I and his wife, Steph, who I also went to college with, we go, or we, in, general, in normal times, we go to every, we're gradually going to every baseball park, every current baseball park, you know. So it's something that I've always been interested in and it's, we're about halfway done. I, I'm always fascinated by stadiums, the history of stadiums. I follow no fewer than three accounts whose primary thing is to just tweet out old baseball pictures of stadiums. I currently in my kitchen and probably the only man in his thirties who has a framed picture of the polo grounds in his kitchen or anywhere in his house. I've been to the site of where the polo grounds used to be multiple times at this point, even taking my weirdness out of this. First of all, that the woman, the architect, I, and I'm spacing out her name at the moment and she's done it for other ballparks.
2: She had act- Janet Marie Smith. I believe I knew it
3: was a three name thing.
2: Janet Marie Smith. She
3: absolutely belongs in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I don't absolutely. understand how there's not more conversation about this. But what Camden Yards did was, Camden Yards is gorgeous and it still holds up. And of the ones I've been to so far, it's still my second favorite. Pittsburgh is is above it, but Camden Yards is my favorite. It reinvented what baseball stadiums were because you had the era of the balls, and everybody's maligned those and. They stunk, but when you look back, you understand why cities in the 60s and 70s felt like they needed multi-purpose stadiums, but they were awful. Now, a lot of the ones there, and the thing is, they also replaced a lot of ones that were so fondly remembered, you know, what they called the jewel box parks. So like Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh replaced.
2: Forbes Field. Field.
3: Crosley Field was replaced by whatever Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati, and they all looked the same and they all stunk. But then after that, you had some ones that were better, but didn't stand that, you know, the, you had the sort of ones like Comiskey or the new Comiskey and ones that that was probably going to be the future, which was like a little bit better than the concrete donuts, but barely, and also the location. And what Camden Yards did is said, no, baseball should go back to its roots, which is downtown. Most stadiums have put it like, when I remember when I went to college in Philadelphia, it was the fall of 04 was the end of the first full year at citizens bank park and philadelphia all the stadiums are are down in south philly they've been for for a very long time going back to when it was just the vet the spectrum and jfk stadium where they basically did nothing except the army navy game and i remember reading people go like yes citizens bank park is awesome but it should be in the middle of the city like we should have found a place to put it downtown like everybody else is doing And most cities have now done that. Camden Yards set the tone of these brick stadiums that invoke retro, but don't keep the retro on the stuff that sucked. Like you still, you don't go sit at a game and stare at a support beam the whole time and the open concourses and the sort of little boutique places to eat and things like that. It really did change the game of baseball. That stadium and it immediately and we'll get back to the actual on the field stuff here, but it immediately impacted the Orioles fortunes. I'm not saying it was just the stadium, but it's hard to imagine the Orioles having the mid 90s, mid to late 90s they had, if they were still playing in a falling down Memorial Stadium, or even a new stadium that was basically Comiskey Park.
2: And it seems so obvious in retrospect that this is what you should do. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time it was ever done. This idea of having the ballpark itself be a part of the experience. Nobody had ever thought of that before.
3: Yeah. So, and I'll just real quick end on, and Dan will remember this, and Mike actually might remember this too when I came back that night. But um, you know, I had seen Camden Yards a couple of times when we drove to Florida to visit my grandparents. And, you, can, you know, you can see Camden Yards off 95. So we were able to see, like, oh, yeah, there's Camden Yards. And this would have been before M&T was built, so it was just Camden Yards there. The first time I ever went to Camden Yards was spring of my freshman year of college. And later throughout college, I went to a bunch of games with Mike and, and a couple of my other roommates, so all of them, that ended up being Orioles fans. But that year, that was, Dan, I believe that was your first couple of months down in D.C. when you were still at BU, but you were doing your semester abroad.
2: Yep, beginning of 05, yep.
3: And we, I was a Sunday in April and I have the game log up. It was, this, it was April 10th, 2005. And I took, I think the bus down from Philadelphia to, to Baltimore. And I met you and your friends. And I think you guys might've been running a little late. And then there was some security getting into the stadium and Carl Pavano started for the Yankees. By the time the third inning was over. It was 4 to nothing Orioles. It got worse. The Yankees were getting... That was the third game of a sweep for the Yankees, I believe. Just, it was... I remember really liking the stadium. And I was like, oh, this is a really cool stadium. But the Yankees were playing so bad. And this was like their second week of games after the 04 ALCS. So it was like, there wasn't a whole lot of goodwill in the Yankees to begin with. And then do you remember what happened late in that game, Dan?
2: The one thing that I remember, and and I do have to say this was a little classless. The Orioles showed video of the Yankees losing the World Series in 2001. It's the only time I've ever seen that happen where a team shows a clip of another team losing to a different team. It was just remember what you did. I think I screamed FU Baltimore and got yelled at by an usher.
3: You 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 also did throw up the double guns.
2: <laughs> I did, I did, yes. No, I was. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't think I would do that today. You know, I, I save my middle fingers now for when people try and get the wave started. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I, i still do stand by the fact that I thought that was a little bit sort of just odd. But that was also a time, and we're we're getting way off the beaten path. But that was also a time in two thousand five, you know, oh four oh five, where it was almost like a competition of who could hate the Yankees more. So Red Sox, obviously, and then Orioles and whoever else. It was like the meaner and and the-
3: over every year, Yankees fans.
2: <laughs> uh- <laughs> so I think, I think that was probably part of it too, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm actually going to my wife and I are going to a Yankees Orioles game. By the time this airs, it'll have been a couple weeks ago, but we're going to an Orioles Yankees game on Thursday of this coming week. And it's just, it's just such a fun place to be Camden Yards.
0: Yeah, it's,
3: it's, it's great. I mean, I've, I've, I have i i do not I was down in Baltimore last December, God, last December it was like three Decembers ago at this point. And I didn't realize it was the first time I'd ever been down by the stadium when there's no game on. I didn't realize that they open those gates normally. And you can walk like along the warehouse. It's so, like by, uh, you can walk across like Utah street. They open those gates. When there's no game, you have you can't go into the stadium, but you can walk along there. There's nothing there. But I remember standing there by the statues and I was like, am I going to get yelled at if I go through these gates? And I was like, I can because I thought maybe they were open for like a maintenance crew or something. But I, I guess they just leave them open. So, you know.
2: Hi, everybody. This is Dan Newman, one of your loyal co-hosts here on Hello Old Sports. Well, it happened again. We started talking about this week's topic and we found out that we had a lot more to say than we could fit into just one episode. And listening back, I realized that this would probably be a good place to end things for this episode. Camden Yards is opening up and the Orioles are just starting to become a good team. That means you'll hear even more of me, Andrew, and our special guest, Mike Petty, next episode, talking about the Baltimore Orioles of the 1990s. Thanks for listening
0: and goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, Here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president
2: of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history
0: of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time
2: as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast.
0: How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.